Okay, let us begin. And uh, as I said, the notes are uh, on their way. So, uh, as always, let us open with some prayer. Almighty God, we know that you're present here. You are present when we are gathered in your name. Your spirit is amongst us. Help us to empower us to open our minds and our hearts to learn about who your son is, who you, Father, are. Help us to know rightly how you have, who, what your attributes are, how you have entered the world, how you have affected the world, how you affect each one of us. So I pray that you will use this time to edify us and to, to strengthen us. We pray all this in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Okay, notes are coming around. So <clears throat> today uh, we are going to talk about church history, but today it's going to be a little more split on history and church because there are some significant historical events that are going to uh, intrude upon the church, and so and they bear a certain amount of discussion. Uh, so we will get to the more, you know, to more church-specific stuff and, and to more theologically-centered stuff in a little bit. But at the beginning, I want to set the historical stage because there are going to be some major uh, fundamental changes that are going to take place uh, to the ch- in the church and to the church, and and the history of Rome is going to have significant bearing on that. So I want to spend a few minutes at the beginning uh, discussing that. And so, uh, to begin, before, well, first, you can look at my little chart there at the beginning, at the top of the first page of the notes, and you'll note that uh, we are leaving the age of the apologists, and we are moving into the age of what are called the theologians. And so in that shift, I don't know where my map went. Um, Anyway, in that shift uh, from the apologists to the theologians, the the degree of uh, theological sophistication is going to increase significantly. The issues that are going to confront the church, the theological issues that are going to confront the church are going to be much more require much more precise language in their argumentation and refutation. So it's going to go from just writing simple apologies to very complex theology. And it's really on the shoulders of of these theologians that we now stand, where we see the expression of the church theologically uh, reach its... I don't need one of these. I have the original. Thank you. Um, so, it. Uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Uh, so we're, mo- we're we're shifting into a an age where there's going to be a, again even greater amounts of writing, and the sophistication of the writing is going to be, an, elevated even further. Um, but 
the dawn of that age is going to see some dramatic shifts in the church, uh, some for the good and some for the, the not so good. So we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Um, so where we left historically, where I've mentioned before, I've mentioned those, the five good emperors. You may remember me discussing them. And the last of them is going to die in 180, and that's Marcus Aurelius. And he's going to be succeeded by his son Commodus, who is going to be crazy. And with Commodus' assassination, there's going to be a new dynasty that's going to control Rome for a good 30 years. And that, that's the dynasty that's initiated by a general from North Africa named Septimius Severus. Not that important, I mean important for Rome, not for what we're talking about. But when his dynasty expires in 235, that is going to initiate what is called the third century crisis for Rome. And that's going to see Rome come to a very, very low point where roughly half of the empire, chunks in the west and chunks in the east, are going to be stripped from the empire and controlled by other entities politically. And of the 35 or so emperors that are going to rule in this 50-year span, absolutely zero of them are going to come to a natural death. So most of them are going to die from assassination. A couple of them are going to die from the plague and in battle. So it's, it's, a, it's a season of great uh, instability for the empire. Why does this matter? Because in 250, one of these short-lived emperors by the name of Decius, he is an, an, a very old-school, traditional, senatorial Roman. And it is his idea that part of the problem that Rome is facing is they are not uh, giving as much uh, worship to the, to the old gods. And so he is going to require that basically everyone make sacrifices to the gods and those who can't will be killed. And so in 250, he is going to initiate the very first empire-wide persecution of Christians where it is the official policy of the Roman Empire, to hunt down Christians and kill them if they will not sacrifice to the gods. So there's been fits of persecution in the past, and some of them have been very bad, but now for the first time, there is no safe place in the empire. No matter where you live, the imperial administration is going to hunt you down and make you offer sacrifice. And if, they, if you don't, you will be killed. So... This, this low political point for the empire is going to have very dramatic consequences for the church. And Decius ultimately is going to die in a battle. Uh, his body will never be recovered. And with him, the, uh, the persecutions will just sort of ease out a bit. There's going to be other issues that the emperors are going to have to deal with. But in a few years, he's going to be followed by a second emperor by the name of Valerian. And in 257, he's going to do the same thing. And he is 
going to reinstitute this empire-wide policy of persecuting Christians. And many prominent believers are going to be martyred in these persecutions. So it's, again, another traumatic uh, episode of the church. But what did Tertullian say? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And the church is actually going to grow significantly as a consequence of, of these persecutions. We don't have exact numbers, but we believe after these persecutions, within a few decades after these persecutions, that Christians are going to make up roughly 10% of the Roman Empire. So it, the, the growth is going to be significant. I mean, that's a lot of people for back then, uh, especially when you consider how many there were at the beginning of Acts. You know, 10% of the Roman Empire is now Christian, roughly. Uh, and incidentally, Valerian, uh, the persecutors have a tendency to die horrible deaths. Um, later, there's going to be a, Christ, a writer of, in a few decades named Lactantius who's going to write a book called On the Deaths of the Persecutors. And he's going to theolog expound on the theology that he sees coming from the fact that God is judging these emperors that, that themselves judge the church harshly. So Valerian's going to end up getting captured by the Persians, and he's going to be made to bend down on all fours and be a step stool for the Persian king so that he can mount his horses. And when Valerian is no longer able to do that, he is going to be beheaded and have his body stuffed and hung behind the Persian king's throne and his head used as a cup. So <clears throat> suffice to say, Lactantius had some ammunition uh, to write about. But anyway... Ultimately, and, you know, I, I have more detail in the notes, and you can just read those later if you want. Um, ultimately, though, the empire is going to be pulled out of this low point, and all of its lost territory is going to be recovered. But on the other side of this huge crisis, it's going to look very different. And that, that difference is going to be in part because, or in large measure, because of an emperor named Diocletian. And when he becomes emperor in 284, nobody would have looked at him and said, this guy's going to be emperor for 20 years, and he's going to be the only emperor in the history of Rome that's going to retire and live a natural life in retirement. So he, he is a, an absolutely... Uh, pivotal figure in Roman history. And what he's going to do, he's going to have do two things that are going to have a big impact on the church. One is he is going to devise a new system of government for Rome. They're still going to have emperors, but he's going to divide the empire up into four chunks. And each chunk is going to have its own emperor. So he's going to have four, three colleagues. So if you see on the map, you can see the yellow, green, purple, and not-so-purple areas, uh, those, those are the four different chunks that he devises. And uh, each one of those is going to have its own emperor. And he does this because there's so many problems confronting the empire that the imperial administration just physically can't be present in all of these places at one time. And so they can manage 
invasions on multiple frontiers if the, if the emperor, if the imperial authority is present in all of these places. Technically, there is still one empire. It's a universal empire, but now it has four joint rulers. And as long as Diocletian is alive, this system is actually going to work pretty well. Incidentally, these areas that he divides them up into they, and forms these new administrations, and he calls them dioceses after his name Diocletian. In the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church is going to adopt this administrative structure. And to this day, I mean, we live in the Diocese of Sacramento right now, as far as the Catholic Church is concerned. So the terminology that he is going to implement is, is still extant to this day. Um, so that's one major shift in, that's going to affect the church, and we'll get to how it affects the church in a minute. The next major thing that Diocletian is going to do is towards the end of his reign, he is going to institute the final persecution of the church by the Roman government. And when I say final, it's bad. And this is what historically is called the great persecution. So it, it was vehement, it was cruel, and it was exhaustive. The citizens of all the cities in the empire were to gather together in public spaces. First, any church leader was just executed immediately. If you, were, if you were a leader of the church, you were executed. By the way, this map or a version of the map is on the back page of your notes, just if you want to refer back to that. Um, so, and, uh, so all the church leaders were just being hunted down willy-nilly and executed. Beyond that, the, throughout the empire, the communities, whatever community you lived in, you were to gather together in a public space, and everybody was to, in front of everybody else, offer sacrifice to the gods. Whatever god you want, you can pick. But if, I mean, it couldn't be to Yahweh, but, I mean, it had to be to the gods, so to speak. And if you did not do that, then you were to be executed pretty much on the spot. So the churches were to be pulled down. The property of the church was to be confiscated. And the scriptures were to be burned. And this was legally empire-wide. And so this is, this is what we call the great persecution. And this is... You know, this is the one that the reputation of Roman persecutions is really built on. However, there was one corner of the empire where there was relative safety and peace for Christians. And that was in the yellow territories, as you look on this map behind, in what is now France and Britain. And so I forgot to mention the, the system of, of government that Diocletian implemented is called the Tetrarchy, which in Greek just means rule by four. So the emperor, the Tetrarch, that was governing Britain and Gaul was named Constantius. And if that name sounds like Constantine, it's because it does sound like Constantine. He's Constantine's father. And anyone familiar with Constantine will know that he is the first emperor that is going to convert to Christianity. And that is the second pivotal event in history 
that we're talking about today that's going to affect the church because the conversion of Constantine is going to have a profound impact on the church in a variety of ways. So, and we don't even have time to talk about all of those today. Uh, Constantine's mother, the wife of Constantius, is, uh, she was a Christian. And so, she was obviously a mediating influence on her husband because he was not actively enforcing the persecutions that Diocletian had ordered for the empire. And even though Constantine himself at this time was a pagan, she obviously had a significant influence on her son because within, a few, within six years, he's going to begin to associate himself with the church openly. So ultimately, Diocletian will retire, and the two junior imp- and the, his anyway it it gets convoluted. But all of these different territories that di- had different emperors are all going to start vying for sole control of the empire. So the system worked as long as he was in charge. At one point, you're going to have six guys all claiming to be emperor, and they're all going to be trying to gain full control of the empire once again. At one point, Diocletian was invited to come back and and mediate all of this, and he said, if you saw the size of the cabbages in my garden, you'd know why I'm not coming back. Um, Interesting guy. Like, seriously, that's that's what he said. Um, But ultimately, in in the year 312, Constantine is going to confront one of his rival emperors outside of Rome. And prior to the battle, the night before the battle, he's going to have a dream in which he is told to uh, devise a symbol that combines the Greek letters chi and rho. And I should have put the picture of the symbol in in the notes. And to this day, it's called the chi rho. And he was told to put it on the shields of all of his soldiers and on a banner that he was to lead the army with. And in Greek, those are the first two letters of the word Christ. So to this day, believers of all stripes, Protestant, uh, Catholic, and Orthodox, will still use the Cairo as a symbol for the church. I don't know if everyone can see this, but I should have put it in the notes, but I'll just draw it really quick. If If you can see that, you may be familiar with that symbol. So that's the symbol that Constantine devised. And so he goes into battle with that on his army, and just immediately before the battle, according to Constantine, he says he sees a burning cross in the sky that has the words on it in Latin. It says, in hoc signe winces, which means by this sign conquer. And he goes into battle, and he wins. And he wins full control of the western half of the Roman Empire. And so that, from that point on, he begins an open affiliation with the church. And the following year, he issues the famous Edict of Milan, which legalizes Christianity. It is now, it's not the favored religion of the empire, but it is now a fully recognized and legal religion in the empire. So the persecutions, there's going to be some corners of the empire where the persecutions are going to continue, but... For the most part, that age has now passed. And now, the church 
will be defended by the emperors. So that is a, a foundational ethical pivot in the relationship of church and state. Like I said, not all of that is going to be for the good. Some of that's going to be for the bad. But for a moment, the church can breathe a sigh of relief. So that's the history, that's, that's the situation historically that's going on. So now I want to talk about what's going on theologically within the church because there is a second war going on and that is for the heart of the church itself and for the doctrine of the church. Truth against falsehood. So if you remember last week I included that list of, of uh, heresies in the back of the notes. And one of the first ones on there was Arianism. And so when Constantine conquers the, imp- the, the eastern half of the empire, that was the last part he took over, he is going to inherit now a, a raging war that's taking place within the church. And before, the, this would have gone on under the table, but now the emperor is associated with the church, and so he is keenly aware of what's going on. So what's going on? Okay, well, let's talk about it. But before I do, I want to read a quote from Tertullian. We talked about Tertullian last week. And he wrote, he wrote several great works, but possibly his greatest was Adversus Praxion, which, which was a treatise against the heresy of Praxius, who was a monarchist, monarchianist. You know, he, and so Praxius taught, as we talked about last week, that uh, there's only one God, but there, there's no Father, Son, and Spirit. So God is, is, a, is, a, is a, there's a word I'm looking for and it's just not coming to me. But there, there's only one God and that's it. I mean, there's, there's no, he has no persons. So it's all one single, it's a, he's a monist is what you would call it. And Tertullian argues that, no, God is one, but he is also Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's in this treatise that Tertullian first, for the first time in history, uses the word Trinity to describe this relationship and the, the between the unity and the differentiation between the persons of, the, of, of God. So he begins his treatise with these words, and I think they're, they're, they're prescient for what is going to come and how Satan works. So Tertullian says, and I think this is on the bottom of the second page. Okay. So Tertullian says, in various ways has the devil rivaled and resisted the truth. Sometimes his aim has been to destroy the truth by defending it. He maintains there is only one Lord, the almighty creator of the world, in order that out of this doctrine of unity, he might fabricate a heresy. So what Tertullian is recognizing is that Sometimes Satan will argue for truth. But sometimes when he does this, it's just a portion of the truth. 
And so he will get people to buy into the truth, but only that part of it, so that in the exclusion of the full truth, he has led them into error. I think Tertullian's insight there is very profound, and, and it is a great admonishment for us. And it's also a great gateway into the Arian heresy, which is going to be the first true systematic theological civil war in the church because Arius is going to create is going to teach a system that many people are going to be adherent to but it is a system that is deeply flawed and at odds with the truth of the scriptures so what is it well Arius was a uh, He was a a leader of the church in Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria was a major center for the church at that time. And he saw some people teaching uh, what he thought was a form of Sabellianism. And and that was, again, it was like what Praxius taught, that there is one God, no distinction in the persons. And so Arius is going to reject that rightly and in so doing he is going to overcompensate and in in his argumentation what he is going to say is yes god is there is a diversity at the you know at in god but that diversity does not is not what Tertullian and others were teaching. What he's going to say is that the Son, that Jesus Christ is not himself God, but was in fact the first created thing. So that there, you know, before the account in Genesis, some, you know, at some point in the distant eternity past, God creates the Son. And then through him, through the Son, then all other things are created. This is what Arius is teaching. This is not what the Bible teaches. But Arius is going to look at certain passages in the Bible, and he's going to take them in isolation. And the one that he really liked to, to home in on was Proverbs 8.22. And here, I'll just pull that up and read it really quick. Um, but again, you know, so much error comes from not reading, interpreting Scripture in the light of Scripture. And that's what, where Arius makes his first critical mistake. He takes this passage and says, how do I make sense of this? And he says, 8.22 says, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. So he's saying, so he's interpreting Proverbs 8.22 as being a statement from Christ in effect, but saying that that the creation of Christ was the first creative act that God did. That's not true. I mean, Christ is God, and we'll get into that in a moment, but Christ, 
the Father created through the Son, but the Son is co-eternal with the Father. And just reading John 1.1 is a refutation of that. I'll jump ahead. Jehovah's Witnesses, they teach what Arius taught. They are Arians. Now, there's no historical connection between Jehovah's Witnesses and Arius other than the fact that they're their views are the same. There's no line of, I mean, there's 1,500 years between Arius and Jehovah's Witnesses, but what their views on Christ are, their Christology are almost exactly the same. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, all these old heresies, they keep coming back. And when you read the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness uh, translation of the Bible. For John one one, they've changed things, which they have changed things that are to a point where they are grammatically. They cannot be grammatically bent to. So we're in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, grammatically in Greek, you can't translate it the way they translate it, which is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And so, I mean, so that's what Jehovah's Witnesses, that's what their Bible actually says. And that is a huge difference. There is a world of difference in that one little article. So Arius is going to go down this same road that... Well, he's going to be the first one to go down it. The Jehovah's Witnesses have gone down Arius's road. So just let me clarify, too. We're going to be talking about this, and we call it the Arian heresy. It's not Arian like ethnic Arian, A-R-Y-A-N. It's Arian from the name Arius. Totally not the same. I just want to make that clear, okay? So we're talking about different things because... Arianism is going to grow, and it's going to become a significant issue that's going to threaten, at least in the eastern half of the Roman Empire, to overtake true teaching. And part of the reason why that is is because Arius was really clever, and one of the things he liked to do was write songs. And so he would teach people songs, and then people would go traveling around, and they would be singing his songs, and... People are like, yeah, that's a catchy tune, and they'd start singing those songs too. But as they're learning these songs, they're learning really bad theology. So let that be a warning to us. Pay attention to what's in the songs. And one of the things, the phrases that he really, really liked to put into his songs was, in hoti pote huk hin, which means literally, there was when he was not, or in other words, there was a time when Christ was not. So that was kind of a refrain that he liked to put in his songs. And people are thinking, that's a great tune. I don't care what the words say, and they're singing it. And uh, they are, through that, learning and inadvertently, in many cases, buying into an absolute corruption of who God is. And so, it is going to get to the point where in Egypt, 
and which is where Alexandria is, and in other areas nearby where there's almost literally a war going on between Christians, where you would have, uh, well, so the words, the words became important here in ways that they hadn't before. So the, the people leading the defense of orthodoxy, which that's the word for, for right belief in Greek, uh, was the leader of the church in Alexandria, whose name was Alexander, and he had uh, his right-hand man, who was a deacon in that church, who was named Athanasius. Now, we'll be spending more time with Athanasius in a minute. He is, he is going to prove to be one of the great leaders in church history. So I am looking forward to meeting Athanasius in, in eternity, because he is, he is a mighty man of God. Um, and Alexander was as well, but this is coming towards the end of his life. At this point, Alexander is a young man in his early 20s, and he's going to spend his whole life battling the forces of false teaching, and he's going to pay a significant personal toll for this. Anyway, so the words that, that, that kind of come down to, uh, define, to draw the battle lines are going to be two words, and three words initially, and ultimately two words. And those you can see... Uh, in section B on the third page, uh, it lists those. So what Arius was, was arguing was he was an, 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 a proponent of the term heterousia, which is Greek for different substance. So he's saying that the Father and the Son are completely different. They are totally separated. And Alexander and Athanasius are going to come back and say, no, they are homoousia, which means they are the same substance. What the Father is, the Son is. And if you render uh, John 1, like really literally out of the Greek, it would be, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what... God was, the Word was. That, that's the literal rendering of, of John 1, 1, or the, 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 the last part of it. So there are many others who are going to try to compromise between the two, and they're going to assert a third position, which is the homoousia, which means a similar substance. And so they are going to be arguing that the Father and the Son, and this is to compromise, they're trying to bridge the gap between the Arians and the Orthodox. And ultimately, the Arian position, is his strict terminology is going to be abandoned, and he's going to say, see that the compromise is even more insidious and latch on to the homoousia position. And yet... If you have a similar substance or a similar essence, you can't say what God was, the Word was. It, it's still different. Similar maybe, but not the same. And so you have an eternity of difference in those things. If you ever heard the phrase, there's only an 
iota of difference between the two. This is where that phrase comes from. In the Greek, you can see the only difference between the, the word homoousia and homoousia is the Greek letter iota, iota. And that's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and it's the only thing that's separating those linguistically, lexically, between those two eternally different positions. And so this is going to be the great debate, and Constantine is going to inherit this uh, conflagration within the church. And he has just succeeded, you know, he's been fighting for almost 20 years to reunify the Roman Empire from Diocletian's tetrarchy, and he has now associated with himself, himself with the church, and he doesn't want disunity in a church, in an empire that he just reunified. And so, under his auspices, under his blessing, what we call the Council of Nicaea is going to be convened. And there's going to be leaders of the churches from all over the Roman Empire are going to gather in the city of Nicaea. Now, Constantine, the year after he conquered the East, is going to found a new capital to be a, a new Christian capital for the Roman Empire. And initially he, he just called it New Rome, but ultimately it came to be called Constantinopolis, which is just the city of Constantine. And so it's right on the Bosporus, and Nicaea is on the opposite side of the Bosporus Strait. And so he's convening this council close to his home territory. I mean, it's all his territory. He's the emperor, but, you know, where he resides, he can keep an eye on it that way. And uh, so it, many luminaries of the church are going to be present. Alexander, Athanasius, Santa Claus, um, not joking, St. Nicholas, that, you know, Santa Claus is, is a corruption of the Dutch Sinterklaas, and that's just Dutch for St. Nicholas. And so St. Nicholas, the guy, you know, old St. Nick, St. Nicholas was at the Council of Nicaea. And famously, during the debate, got up and slapped Arius for blasphemy. So, it's a good time to think about the Council of Nicaea at Christmas time. Uh, so yeah, Santa Claus was there. Um, kind of makes Santa cooler, doesn't it? <laughs> um, so ultimately, the council is going to meet, and they are going to debate, and they are going to search the scriptures and seek the truth. And at the end of the council they are going to find that the scriptures support homoousia that Alexander and Athanasius have been teaching and fighting for so dogmatically. And it's going to be a nearly unanimous decision. There's going to be, other than Arius, only two uh, bishops are going to vote against it. And so it's going, that's going to be a huge watershed for the church. And as a result of that, they are going to draft a creed for the church, which is intended to articulate the proper understanding of who God is, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And that's what we call the Nicene Creed. Now, we don't recite the creed in our church, but that doesn't change the truth of the matter that we are, this church, all Protestants are Nicene Christians. So there's two creeds that all traditions of Christianity affirm. The Nicene Creed, and then we'll talk about this one a little later, the Chalcedonian Creed. So we are Nicene Chalcedonian Christians. If you can't affirm those two creeds, you're out of the camp. You, you mean, there's other things we can disagree with, but if you can't affirm who God is and specifically who Jesus Christ is, which is what the, the Chalcedonian Creed is going to speak to, uh, you're already off the table. You're outside of the camp of, of, of the church. Now, we can debate on a lot of things, but if you can't agree on those, there's no debate. You're out. So, question. Well, that, that creed is going to come later, and it's going to be an informal document that's going to kind of develop over time. And there's, there's a few questions in there, like Jesus descending into hell and, you know, the things like that that are going to need to be sorted out as far as what it means. But the Apostles' Creed is also never going to be affirmed by the church as a whole. This is going to be an official document from the leaders of the church saying, we all believe this. Plus, Santa helped write it, so... Um, so let me read the, the, uh, the creed. Now, the date of the Council of Nicaea was 325, and, you know, I hate to say this, but that's not the end of Arianism, because it's going to find a, an imperial patron that's going to propel it, and we'll talk about that briefly in a minute. So there's going to be a second council a generation later, that's what we call the Council of Constantinople. And in that one, the creed is fleshed out a little bit. Some lines are added for clarity, but we still affirm. And what we call the Nicene Creed today is this, is this second creed. I mean, it's the same creed with just a little more language added in to refine it to, so people know exactly what is being stated. So um, I'm going to, I included the final version, the, the refined version, doesn't change anything. It's only making it more specific. So let me read that. But on the version that I included, when I wrote this out, I broke it out so that you can see um, biblical references for each of the statements that are being made in here. And lastly, before I read it, there's a line at the end in section 18 where it says, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In that I could have substituted the word universal for Catholic. It's not saying Roman Catholic. It's saying universal. There's a difference. So, so here is the creed. <clears throat> we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, that's homoousius, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, homoousius, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was, un, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. 
And on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, and who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And so that is the first comprehensive statement of faith the church ever formulated. And everything in that, we still affirm today. We might use different language, but I mean, these are the fundamental... Uh, doctrines of the church, and I would I would assert that that almost all, when you come to systematic theology, almost all of the major doctrines of the church are are either explicitly or implicitly stated. And I kind of go into that a little bit on the, the the next page at the top. But there are ten things that the leaders at the council were were sifting through that they were looking towards, looking for, or, or recognizing in the scriptures that are going to lead them to affirm what Alexander and Athanasius had been teaching, what the church had always been teaching at that, you know, when, so those things are, <clears throat> and this is all in regards to Christ's deity, so they know who the Father is, but who's Christ? The separate person, but still one God. So they're looking at divine prophecy, divine existence, the divine name, divine authority, divine power, divine ownership, divine exaltation, divine titles, divine unity with the Father, and divine affirmation. All of those things, they are going to search the Scriptures and find all of those things. And finding all of those things, the position of Arius is untenable. You cannot have all of those things in reference to Christ and argue what Arius is arguing. So if you ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness, there's 10 things right there where you can say, no, we believe this. You know, this is, this is what the Bible teaches. This is different from what you guys are teaching. I wouldn't necessarily say it that way, but... In terms of of differences, those are things that they cannot affirm. The the council also sifted through the church fathers. Obviously, they refer to Tertullian quite a bit. Uh, Irenaeus, all the church fathers that we've talked about and others, they're going to look and see what they had to say about it, what those who, who came before them had taught and asserted and believed, and, and it is what the church had always taught and asserted and believed, which is what we still teach and assert and believe to this day. So the church has been unified in this ever, you know, from the beginning, but, you know, it's interesting, almost every major heresy in the church is always going to have to do with the person of Christ, whether it's whether or not he's God or whether or not he's fully man, some, in some way the person of Christ is always going to be the crux of the heresy. 
There's a few exceptions to that, but that's kind of a, a, a rule of thumb. So the council is going to break, and for a few years, that's going to be the end of the issue. But Constantine's son, Constantius, is, is going to be an Arian himself. And so through imperial patronage, the, the cult of Arius and his teachings is going to have a, a new round of strength, and it's going to uh, take significant work from believers who are defending true doctrine to, to overcome that. Athanasius himself, through this time period, is going to be exiled multiple times. At one point, he's going to be exiled beyond the bounds of the empire. He's going to have to live up on the, the north end of the Black Sea. Uh, so he, he's going to pay a significant price for all of this, but through all of this, he's going to continue writing and teaching. And ultimately, through the work of him, he and, and, and next week, not n next Sunday, but the following Sunday, we'll talk about those who come alongside him and who are going to, to teach true Trinitarian doctrine to the refutation of Arius, and ultimately the truth will win out. Regarding Athanasius, though, he wrote a lot, and I would encourage everybody to, to read his works, but if you had to pick one, uh, I would encourage you to read one that's called De Incarnatione, which is just, it's for on the incarnation. And it's, it's short. I mean, it's only about 70 pages, but it is, um, it is dense with truth. Um, there's a version of it that C.S. Lewis wrote uh, an introduction for. Um, and I even included a quote from C.S. Lewis about it in here, which I normally wouldn't do just because I try to keep my quotes from the people we're talking about. But Lewis said, when I first opened De Incarnatione, I soon discovered by a very simple test that I was reading a masterpiece. Only a mastermind could, in the fourth century, have written so deeply on such a subject in such classical simplicity. So I would encourage everybody to read that work. Um, when he begins it in the very first paragraph, Athanasius says, <clears throat> in, in, as he, he kind of initially says to the person that he addresses the work to, he says, you know, we're going to look at the incarnation, he says. So, and, but he, then he says, and he said it a little more eloquently than I just did, we will begin then with the creation of the world and with God its maker. For the first act that you must grasp is this, the renewal of creation has been wrought by the selfsame word who made it in the beginning. There is thus no inconsistency between creation and salvation. For the one father has employed the same agent for both works, affecting the, the salvation of the world through the same word who made it in the beginning. That was a good punctuation. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? There is no inconsistency between creation and salvation, and that the one who affected the first will also affect the latter. That's awesome. Like, that, that's, 
that's some truth we need to hear. Later on, he said, and I mean, I just picked two quotes right from the beginning of the work. The whole thing is just dense. Later, Athanasius says, we will begin then with the creation of the world and with God its maker. I just put the same quote in twice. Never mind. (laughs) Dang it. And I am terrible at verbatim recitation. So I can't read the second quote. How did I do that? Well, I'll just, the last line is true. Amen. (laughs) So, man, I'm sorry, guys. Chase, I'll fix that when I uh, send you the notes. So, but suffice to say, uh, read Athanasius. It's, it's really good. He's so meditative, and his, his theology is so uh, spot on and profound. It's just a deeply edifying work. I mean, and he, he was a great theologian of the church, but he was also a great pastor. I mean, he was very interested in shepherding his flock. In, in getting them to focus in on who Christ is and, and for them to know rightly who Christ is. So, you know, those are all things we need to do today. So, I mean, I would encourage everyone to make Athanasius a part of your reading. So, uh, ultimately, after that second council, that second council that I mentioned, in the one where the... the Creed kind of reached its second uh, iteration, or its final iteration, I should say. Um, The council was convened because Arianism was still a problem because of imperial patronage. But ultimately, theologically, it's going to be refuted a second time and a final time in many ways because the imperial patronage will come to an end and Theodosius the Great, the last emperor to rule a united Roman Empire in 395 will make Christianity, Nicene Christianity, the the official religion of the church. Again, there's some good things that come with that and some bad things that are going to come with that. However, ironically, and I'll just end on this to set the table for some future... uh, heartache for the church. That's not the end of Arianism. Because during the imperial patronage, there's going to be a missionary named Ulphilus who is going to go outside of the empire and he is going to convert numerous barbarian tribes to Arian Christianity. And so when we get to the end of the Roman Empire, when the Germans invade the Western Empire in mass, these are not pagan Germans but they are Aryan Germans, Aryan Christian Germans. So where Arianism had been confined to the Eastern Roman Empire previously, now by the sword it's going to be imposed on the Western Empire. And so a new round of uh, theological debate will ensue. But this time they're armed with the creed. And that's going to be a powerful tool to continue to refute and repudiate those Aryans that are going to be the overlords of the West after the fall of the Western Empire. But we'll talk about that later. So I'll end there. Any questions? No? Yes. Uh, It was just a couple of months. Yeah. So it wasn't a really long meeting. There's going to be some other 
councils of the church that are going to take a lot longer. But Nicaea was pretty quick, in part, I think, because the side of truth had, you know, they, they did... They had their ducks in a row, you might say. I mean, they had their argumentation well laid out, and it was pretty obvious from Scripture what the truth of the situation was. That's my speculation, but it wasn't a long council. Any other questions? Okay. Uh, I'm not going to be here next. There was no question. There was no question, right? Yeah. I'm not going to be here next Sunday, so we'll continue with uh, the historical side of things the weekend after Thanksgiving, but is Larry going to? Jeff is. Okay. Sweet. (laughs) Okay. Well, let's uh, end in prayer then. Almighty God, thank you so much for your spirit and the way your spirit has worked through your church for so many centuries, for the testimony of these amazing leaders, their words that you inspired, not like the scriptures, but you were still indwelling them, and their pens were still spilling over with love and admiration and knowledge of you. And we thank you that we can read these words from them, from Athanasius, from others, that we can imbibe deeply from the well of wisdom that saints who have gone before us have left behind. So I pray that we will be wise in our interaction with that, that we will learn from it, and that we will be edified and strengthened for the trials to come. In your name we pray. Amen.